Welcome to Empowering Chats with Susan Burrell. This is where I help strong, capable women excavate the inner garbage in their life so they can become more confident and have more clarity on who they are and how they really want to be in the world. We have rich, juicy conversations about, yeah, you guessed it, empowerment, but also about radiating your brilliance and loving yourself more than you ever have in your life. And who doesn't want that? So join me now for another empowering chat. So we are riffing again, just as a reminder on re-emergence. That's what Empowering Chats with Susan Burrell is talking about this year, re-emergence. And we are now entering the month of April, if you can believe it. And we chose, my team and I chose for this month, the word materialize. Now, when I was coming up to do this little intro thing, I was like, materialize, really? But with things that are occurring in the world right now, it's interesting what materialize actually means. So let me tell you, it means to come into perception or existence, to appear, to become actual or real, give material form to, to be realized or carried out, materialize. So it's interesting to me how we can actually individually come into a perceptible existence or appearance of whatever it is that we're choosing to focus on, right? Choosing to focus our attention on. So I am wanting to encourage you for the month of April to really focus on peace, beginning with yourself, inner peace, then community peace, and then global peace. But it has to start with you, focusing within, because you already, each of us, as divine sparks already have the seed of peace within us. We just have to focus on it. This is also part of reemergence. We have to focus on the peace within us in order to grow and develop it. And then we can share it with our community, with the world. So materialize. Hmm, interesting. And the shows we have for this month are going to support you in learning how to do more of that. So enjoy the show. So I'm excited to have this conversation uh, because this woman and I grew up in the same area. It's so fun to finally meet somebody who knows, you know, we have different history, but similar and all that. Um, but also her, the name of her book is called Love Smacked. And when I saw that, it just reminded me of gobsmacked, you know, the Scottish phrase, kind of like, oh, yeah, let's wake up. So um, I'm, I'm so curious how this conversation is going to go. I want to welcome Sherry Gabba. Thank you for joining us. Oh, you're so welcome, Susan. Thank you for everything you're doing in the world. And I love having a neighbor, you know, as, uh, you know, as host, as interviewing me. I think it's really cool. Very yeah. Cool. So let me read the entire title of this book. Uh, so everybody gets exactly what love smack really does mean to you. It's love smacked, how to stop the cycle of relationship addiction and codependency to find everlasting love. Now, just that 
that whole title right there, I could chew on for a good 10 minutes because <laughs> the, the cycle of relationship addiction, Sherry, I, I had never really heard of that before. How do, how do people get addicted to relationships and what does that mean? So it's funny, a lot of people know the word obsessive love, but the, you know, the clinical term, although it's not in the DSM, is love addiction, um, or you could call it relationship addiction, romance addiction. And so when you think of a substance abuse, you know, you're addicted to that first high. People that are addicts and alcoholics, they talk about chasing that first high. So for a love addict, they're chasing that first love drug, you know, that first, oh my God. So it's not a substance abuse, but it's a process addiction. You can call it a um, lifestyle addiction, a soft addiction. So if you think of things like the internet and exercise or spending or dating or love or codependency, those are all mood altering addictions. And mm -hmm. the same euphoric state that you would with a substance, you also have the withdrawal. So if the relationship, you know, there's a breakdown in the relationship, you go through that awful, you know, withdrawal period where you're just jonesing for the next relationship. Um, and that's like if a breakup occurs, you're, you're just longing for that attachment. And you, you really struggle with an insecure attachment, most likely. Um, you also have codependent, codependency kind of overlaps where you kind of turn yourself into a pretzel just to be with that person. Oh. You'll do anything, you know, for that uh -huh. person want you because you're so scared of being alone in my case I had severe abandonment issues being an, a, a preemie I were the same age and and in those days we weren't allowed mothers weren't allowed to hold their babies so I literally was in an incubator for three months so I had these issues from the get-go and mm -hmm. people that believe in cell memory know that you know if you don't get that attachment or that bonding there, there's going to be a problem so you really need others to feel whole you're always looking for others for affirmation you need validation from others and you just really lose yourself in the relationship. And that, that really is what a love addict is. So um, it, it's interesting because there are some crossovers with having been, uh, I was in a 28 year marriage to a narcissist, you know, unbeknownst to me until I started to leave the, the marriage and then it all just came out. Um, but so there's crossovers there and this idea of turning yourself into a pretzel to be what they want you to be or what you think they want you to be is, is I think a lot of women do that, even if they're not necessarily in an addiction kind of relationship. Hold on. I know you're editing this. So we're just going to turn that off. Okay. You want to ask that again? You want to repeat that? I can't remember what I said. Oh, you said a lot of women, a lot of women. Oh, a lot of women have that kind of need to turn themselves into something they're not, even if they don't have a love addiction, you know, uh, people I don't know. Leaders. We're probably talking about someone who's a codependent. So, you know, mm -hmm. when you grow up, um, let's say you were abandoned or neglected, or in my case, early trauma of, of or early, uh, you know, birth trauma, shall, shall I say, um, you're going to, you're not going to really feel like a whole person. You're going to feel invisible if you didn't get that attention you needed, the bonding, the nurturing. And so um, that's pretty much why you become a people pleaser and you become very other focused because everything is about everything outside of you. And if you grew up in a home where there was alcohol abuse or addiction or, or any kind of chaos, you're, you're you know, you're kind of like living in this, you know, trauma vortex and it becomes about everybody else but yourself. And so you're, you're so um, vulnerable to being in a toxic relationship because you, you don't have a sense of yourself. 
So when you think of, let's say, you know, I really am careful about using the word narcissist. I mean, a true narcissist lacks empathy, cannot see another point of view. But when I talk about toxic relationships, I am pretty much talking about narcissistic traits or could be a narcissist. So I just have mm -hmm. to differentiate. But if you're the kind of person that you're always obsessing over that person, ruminating over that person, you know, you want to know where they are all the time. They want to know where you are all the time. You're always walking on eggshells. Um, you're trying to anticipate, you know, what they might say to you to avoid a, a fight. You feel guilty all the time because they're always blaming you for everything. Why are they blaming you? Because they take no responsibility. Um, you're always fighting with them. You're constantly being manipulated and controlled. And then all that other stuff, gaslighting, love bombing, we can get into that later, but yelling, insulting, um, physical injury, disrespect, betrayal, dishonesty, uh, cheating, and then most importantly, your lack of self-care. You, you stop taking care of yourself. You start neglecting your mental and physical health. These are all telltale signs that you're probably with a toxic person. And the way love addiction comes in is you're in this toxic relationship and then you just get into another one and another one and another one because you're avoiding the idea of being on your own. You're avoiding being alone. You know, you and I are similar ages and, um, and it really almost doesn't matter what age you are. You're afraid, you know, you won't meet anybody. There's no good men out there. Um, I'm going to be alone forever. Um, and then really just deeply inside of yourself, you just, you just feel so alone. And if you look at a narcissist, they're kind of the same. That's like two sides of the same coin. They have the uh -huh. same profound abandonment issues, but they manifest it differently. They, they use you and then you need to be needed. So you actually sort of find each other, you know, and that's how you stay. That's why I, I mean, you just, you were following me around for 28 years <laughs> in my marriage. Cause you just described it to a T and that's, and that's also uh, until I was able to recognize that I needed to individuate, right? I needed to self-actualize me and learn how to love me. I, I was just there. And um, so, so in your book, you talk a lot about obsession too. Mm -hmm. So uh, because understanding that addiction is also an obsession. Now explain that, that. Are they different or the same? I think it's pretty much the same. I think, you know, obsession comes from, you're really, you know, you're obsessed over a person. So you're addicted to that person. You can't stop thinking about that person. They, you know, and all the things I mentioned before, but really the bottom line is it's really an attempt to recover the losses of your early childhood. So if you didn't receive uh -huh. love and nurturing and you didn't feel secure, you know, you're going to grow up um, not with a great sense of self. And so mm -hmm. you're going to, you're going to, you're, you're apt to not get into healthy relationships. You're not going to know what a boundary looks like. So people, so a narcissist or toxic person is going to cross over your boundary. Um, without the nurturing, you develop self, poor self-esteem, insecurity. Um, love addicts probably had caregivers who were unavailable physically, emotionally. Some were neglected, some were molested. Some, some do come from intact families. Maybe they were bullied as an adolescent and that's where they became insecure and really cared about what other people thought. You know, we know that the greater the intensity of a person's unmet needs early on, the stronger the addiction is going to be, and they're going to want to relieve their childhood. And this time they're going to make it, they think they're going to do it right. So if I, if I can mm -hmm. just get you to really want me and love me, then I'm finally going to get the love I never got as a child. Um, and being in a, this relationship seems to relieve the negative feelings that children had, but it really is not what a healthy relationship looks like. You can't depend on your partner 
to make you feel whole. They can't undo what you did not get growing up. Right. So then how do you, how do you eventually, I mean, can you eventually heal from this kind of a, or recover from this kind of a, a, a addiction to constantly being in a relationship that's not healthy for you? Well, I think if you, you know, I, I will say this, not everybody that is a love addict or codependent had trauma. So I have to always throw that caveat out there that you can just be this really, you know, and it's very important. I say this, you could have just been this really empathic, loving, compassionate human being, right? Me, that's me. Oh my. And so you found this guy and he was able to, you know, kind of suck you in because you're such a good human being. So that's one thing that can happen, you know, and that's why people go, I didn't have any drama. Like, why am I in this horrible relationship? And what I would say is um, that's one way because you're just a good person, but mostly it's because you came from some kind of trauma. So the most important thing to heal love addiction or heal after a toxic relationship is two things. Find a great trauma therapist, which is what I do for, you know, that is how I make my living. And you get into a great support group. And I happen to also do that. I have a support group that we can talk about later for people struggling. Because I know that when I became a single mom, I joined a single parent group. And when I was married to an alcoholic, I joined, you know, the 12-step program Al-Anon. And then later, you know, I got into some other unhealthy relationships. And I said, you know, I got to create something for the for these people that have been in these codependent, love-addicted, toxic relationships. And so I created a support group, but the, the most important thing to get out of this, uh, this patterning that you're in is to heal that trauma. Trauma is basically you have a fight, flight, freeze, or fawn response. And a lot of people don't know about the fawn response. And the fawn What's that? It's the people pleasing response. It's, it's the caregiving response. It's the, I'm going to ah. do anything to avoid confrontation. I'm going to, you know, you're because you've been traumatized. So, you know, you either, like I said, you either fight, flee. So that's why you have love avoidance. Those are the ones that flee. And then you have the fawners, which are the codependents and the love addicts. And then some people just can never get out of that trauma. And they're in like a free state. Those are the people that disassociate and can't really have an intimate relationship because they're disassociated. So that's why, you know, a talk therapy is fine, but you really need someone that does the trauma work. And so... So what's one thing, if I were to come to you, what's one kind of trauma thing you do? Is there hip, hypnotism or? No, I don't do that. <laughs> so I do something called somatic experiencing, which is. Just... Oh, explain that to everybody. So if I asked you, uh, Susan, when you were with the narcissist, um, what do you notice in your body right now? Where do you feel that, you know, that grabs trauma? me in my gut right now? Yeah. Okay. So we would kind of sit together with that and it might be pretty excruciating, but we would sit there and we'd allow that energy in your body to move and just allow it to give it spaciousness to move. And then I might also teach you regulating skills, like how to self-regulate so that, because a lot of people can't be alone with themselves. So I might give them some tools like, you know, one tool is to, uh, it's a very interesting tool, but you say the word voo like boo. If you do that, it's a, it's just a tool and it helps kind of regulate your system so that you're not in fight flight and you can go down into a calmer state. We have three mm. states. We have our parasympathetic state. We have our dorsal vagal. So the parasympathetic is fight flight. 
the dorsal vagal is, these are all the trauma states, the dorsal vagal, or excuse me, these are all nervous system um, states. The dorsal vagal is where you go into collapse, disassociation, numbness, self-medicating, addiction. And then the, the last one is ventral vagal. Like right now, you can't see me, some of you, but I'm holding my little puppy. This is a ventral vagal tool. Like this dog keeps me calm. So while I'm doing this interview, I feel nice and calm because I'm holding this dog. So there's all kinds of really great tools to help people learn how to self-soothe and self-regulate. Mm -hmm. So that really mm -hmm. is what trauma therapy is. So can we, uh, sure, can we go back to the somatic? Because I work with a somatic healer. Um, I've, I've interviewed him a few times for my show as well. Because it, so if you're focusing on the energy in the body, that's where, that's where is that where the emotion gets stuck? Or the, because trauma is kind of, is emotions, yeah? That's where the trauma is stuck. I mean, I guess you could call it emotion, but that's where the trauma is stuck. And, uh -huh. you know, we're always trying to run away from it. And so instead, we're just going to, um, you know, I might start out with a nice 10 minute grounding exercise where I'll ask a person to, you know, notice their feet on the ground and, you know, resource themselves, look around the room, really, really get as present as they can, but help them get present. And then I might ask them, where do you feel the constriction? Oh, I feel it in my back. And then I might say, and where do you feel the okayness? Where do you know that you're okay? And then they're like, oh yeah, there's that too. Right. So we're always running from what we don't want to feel. And sometimes we can just sit with it and know that there's both. You know, there's, mm -hmm. the, there's the constricted and then there's the expansive. So, um, it, the most important thing really for me is helping people slow it down because when you're in a love addicted state, you're just like, I want it and I want it now and I want to connect and I'm craving someone and I can't be alone. And it's like this, you know, foot on the gas and the, and the, um, the brakes at the same time. And so what we want to do is just slow it down. Like what's the rush? Let's take our time and, and just be okay in your nervous system. Most people are not okay because their nervous system has been shocked by the trauma that they might've grown up with, or you know, later were bullied, or maybe they had to move lots of places, or you know, I, I, whatever, their, whatever their story is. You know, my story right, right. In, in an incubator, but you know, all the stories are equally painful. <clears throat> yeah, I, I, after my divorce, it took me many years for my adrenal system to, to reset and replenish because I was in a constant state during the divorce and probably throughout the whole marriage, but of, you know, of fear, you know, and fear of being attacked or, or whatever. So that's interesting. And it's, I get it. I get it. My mother, my father died back in 2014 and my mother had beginnings of dementia and she unfortunately got with a narcissist, a true full blown, 100% con man narcissist who moved in with her, took advantage of her financially, physically, sexually, every which way. And um, I had to deal with this monster. And I, I mean, just for days after, you know, and, and my mother became impossible because she was being brainwashed by him. Yep. Yep. Thank yep. God he's, he's gone now and she's in a assisted living and, and, but we lost a lot of years because of that, because he, he definitely had her, um, kind of like the uh, Stockholm syndrome. I mean, she just, you know, that yeah. was her abuser. But anyway, I would leave her condo and for days it would just be like, ah, just be all over me, that that toxic 
energy that he that he permeated through every pore of his monster body. <laughs> yeah, I mean. and and this is what I talk about on my uh, on empowering chats all the time is is that we are energy beings. So when and other people can uh, download their energy into you, so you don't even you know it, it, it's well, especially empathic people, but it becomes, are you operating from your true self and your true connection? Or are you operating with another filter over you? And so the somatics uh, uh, work that you do, I, I would imagine is hugely benefit uh, beneficial because then people get where that energy lies in their body. And, and then do you help them eventually let go of it? Yeah, that's what it is by just noticing it and being aware mm -hmm. of it. And then mm -hmm. some other different types of tools. Yes, they're releasing that energy. Um, the good part about the somatic work or any kind of work like this is then you can be present and know that something doesn't feel right. You know, some people don't even know, like they know, but they don't want to know. And so they go into this denial. I mean, when I was supposed to, when I got married, you know, I always knew that these things were not right, but I would deny it. I knew it was not right, but I would deny it because I wasn't, you know, present in myself. Yep. So yep. when you finally can be present in your body and you don't have to run from yourself, you make much better decisions. Um, that doesn't mean someone can't download their toxic energy onto you. And that's where it's important for you to recognize it and then have really good boundaries. So in my mother's case, I just stopped talking to them. I just, you know, I, mm -hmm. I used to feel like I had to call her every day because my dad had died, blah, blah, blah. And then finally one day I went, I can't have this. So I stopped calling all the time and I felt better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's important. Yeah, it's important. I just wanted to point out to people that are listening. It's important that you um, take care of yourself first. It's that, that whole being on the airplane and putting the oxygen on first. Thank God we don't have to do that. But um, because in my in my experience, I can only be as good a person or as present as I can be it because I'm taking care of me first. And when I, when I forget that my energy system gets depleted, like immediately because I'm trying to do this caregiver thing that I would, or codependency thing that I was, uh, you know, taught to do. Many women are, you know, are raised that way. Men too. I'm not going to just say women. And then you end up losing yourself in that person. Mm -hmm. And, if you um, even had yourself, right? Right. Well, if you, like I said, that's right. So if you were brought up the way I talked about earlier, there was no sense of self because mm -hmm. nobody actually mirrored yourself, you. That's how you become a human being is, you know, you look at little, I have grandchildren now and I look at my little grandson and he'll be like doing his little thing. He's, he's 10 months old. And then he'll look back at me and go, oh, she's still there. And then he'll go back and do his thing. But if you had, you know, parents that were absent or, you know, preoccupied or, busy with their own problems or they were divorced and they're trying to make a lit they just weren't there for you you don't get that really true intimate connection with that parent and then you can't really have a true intimate connection with yourself and then if you yeah you know i remember i would blame all these men on oh i just picked assholes blah 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 and one day in my early 50s i realized wait a minute you picked them and you picked them because you didn't want to be really intimate with them and i'm not talking about sex i'm talking about that real connection that yeah. is very really rare, you know, that's a right. And it's very hard to have that connection if you don't know who you are. 
that was um, something that I had to learn coming out of my uh, previous marriage it, it, because I, I realized I didn't know who I was. And I never had had a self-definition of me because when we grew up, it, that, that defining yourself at a young age was not the thing, right? Now, now a lot of the, the um, kids are taking gap years so they can find themselves, so they can know who they are before they commit to going to college or, or a, a job, a business or, or whatever. And I think that that's brilliant because I- I've never heard that word. It's called gap years. Uh-huh. That's interesting. Instead yeah. of going straight to college, a lot of kids are taking a couple of years and, and traveling and or working or whatever it is. And they're learning more about who they are. And then when they make a relationship choice, my son just got engaged. Um, right. He, thank you. Um, but, you know, he knows who he is because he's taken time to learn who he is. Right. right. And, um, but- I, we weren't yeah. necessarily afforded that when we were growing up. Yeah, I was, there raised, was, and not all women were raised that way. But in my day, in the '60s, you know, it was just about maybe college, but really just finding a husband, being taken care of. I mean, mm -hmm. I sort of got they sort of gave me mixed messages because it was kind of during the feminist time, and it was like, well, yeah, you're a girl, you listen, just take shorthand. And for those of you that are too young, shorthand was a secretarial type skill. Skill. And it was like, yeah. Just, yeah, because then you can always make money. And then while you're looking for a husband or, you know, whatever it was. So the, the idea was, you know, you're not a whole person on your own. And I fought that tooth and nail. I, I that's why I, I have what I have today, because I went to college, I went to graduate school, I, I didn't care about all of these things that I was being told. I said, No, no, that's not who I am. Uh, but it, but then but then there was this other part of me that wanted a guy that wanted a man. Yep. You know, yep. so, so even though I had this career and I was independent in that respect, I still didn't feel completely whole unless I had a partner. See, I blame it on Disney. Oh, don't I, get started. I blame it on the Barbies and the Disney and the happily ever after thing that was this fantasy that is pretty unattainable. It's still going on. My granddaughter has every princess you can imagine today yeah. with Disney. Yeah. I just took her to a Disney show and um, it was actually very funny that instead of a fairy godmother, it was a fairy god fairy. That was very cute. <laughs> it was a fairy. It was a, it was a guy that was a fairy god fairy and, and he was he was gay and it was fantastic because it definitely opened up doors to this idea that it didn't have to be just a fairy godmother. So I love that. But what I didn't love, it's still the same thing, you know, the princesses and they're going to find their you know, their Prince Charming and, you know, they buy into that fantasy even today in 2022. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and, and we did grow up with mixed messages because of the feminist movement and, you know, women needed to get a corporate job and, you know, get a, you know, well-paid job, blah, blah, blah. But in, in my home, my mom was a stay-at-home mom, you know, that was, that was their unspoken agreement when, when, they had children. My folks had children. Mom stayed home. She quit her job and stayed home. And I remember going through high school thinking, why don't you, why don't you work? Why don't you do something with your life? Why are you a mom? That's just blah, blah, blah. You know, and I was so judgmental. But then when I graduated from college, I was, I was on some sort of marriage track mentally, you know, are you the one, are you the guy, are you the, you know, and I got married at age 25, which I think is very young, way too young. But anyway, 
22. Oh my gosh. And, and so there was no opportunity to just be out in the world, self-defining and seeing what might, you know, we, I just went right into a, a long-term committed relationship and, um, and didn't know, you know, didn't know what I didn't know. What we were supposed to do, but it was very, exactly. very, very confusing. And, and like you said, if, if, if the modeling isn't happening in the family of origin in the home, uh, as the child's growing up then there, then there, the opportunity to make choices that aren't healthy is more frequent. And if you continue, if you have a very codependent relationship with your parents, which I did, it I did too. I was as good as the last date I went on. Oh, have you met somebody yet? Have you, Oh, you're getting married. Great. Or, Oh, I mean, it was always, always about the guy like, Oh, that's good that you, you have a good job or you're going back to school. Okay. Whatever. But it was, I was always like, do you have a man in your mm-hmm. life? And it was compounded by the fact that I was a single mother. So it was always about, and he moved back East when she was a year old, the ex-husband and father. So it was always about, you know, finding her a quote, you know, dad, which was just ridiculous because, you know, the ones that want to be, well, I, I don't want to judge all of the stepdads out there, but a lot of them, when you're young, like I was, they want to be, they want to control you and they want to control your kid. And that's yeah. I ended up in some very controlled yeah. relationships, but you know, I, that was on me, you know, I was trying to fill a void. So that's why I'm doing this job here because I want people to know that there are reasons you make these choices and you get to make different choices. And that's what's important. So Sherry, then what are, so for people that are listening, if they are kind of going, well, that kind of sounds like me, but I don't know. What are some uh, signals or qualities of being obsessed, you know, relationship addicted? So when you meet, first meet someone, you fall in love instantly. If, you know, you think about them constantly and you fantasize about a future together. That, that's, that's just the telltale sign right there. You, you know, you overwhelm your partners with lots of attention. You feel it's your responsibility to fix your partner, make them perfect. Because remember, you're trying to meet a delusion of who you want them to be rather than who. Oh, I are. love that. You're meeting a delusion. Wow. Or, or an illusion. You're, you, that's mm-hmm. really what it is. You are not mm-hmm. yourself with your partner. You're always turning yourself into a pretzel, like we talked about earlier. And you're always trying to change yourself and them to suit yourself and to suit them. You're very hypervigilant and you overact to the slightest sign that your party's no longer interested. You feel empty and lost or unworthy if you're not in a relationship. So when I talk about this, I think about the digital age today of like, if they don't text me right away, oh my God, they're, they've already gone on to someone else. They don't want me. They don't care about me. That definitely is someone who's got some kind of trauma, love addicted, abandonment, separation, anxiety, anxious attachment issues. I mean, I'm not trying to diagnose them, but these are some of them. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and then the whole thing about, you know, internet dating and, de- and app dating. Now, if you're someone who's a love addict, you're going to not do well in the app world because you're going to get ghosted and people are going to act like they're interested and then they're going to disappear and you're going to have all kinds of not great experiences. So if you're going to do that kind of dating, you have to expect that that goes with the territory. And if someone ghosts you, does it make it right? But if somebody ignores you, ghosts you, and I can't tell you, I have one client, she goes out with these men, they have a great time for a couple of weeks and then they're gone and it just keeps happening. And okay, well, the common denominator is her, yes. 
The other common denominator is she keeps meeting them on these apps. Uh-huh. And these apps are like candy for a lot of men and women alike. Right, right. Yeah, I hear that. I shared this story and I get some flack and I don't really care. But I met a guy last year and he'd asked me out on a Saturday night and then another Saturday night. And I thought, this is really going well. And then he relegated me to a Sunday night. And so I, being the intuitive person, I said, I'm curious, why a Sunday night? You know, are you dating a lot of women? I mean, I just straight out asked. And well, yeah, I am. I hardly know you. And yeah, that's why I'm asking you out on Sunday night. And I just said, well, you know what? When you're ready to have me be your Saturday night date, let me know. Because I don't want to be one of many, 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 many people that this guy is dating. And if you're already moving me from Saturday to Sunday. Now, I had a lot of people say, oh, my God, Sherry, that is ridiculous. You hardly know the guy. He doesn't owe you anything, blah, blah, blah. But you know what? I knew that that didn't feel good. Right. And that's important. I'm saying this out loud to everybody. It's important you pay attention to your your inner awareness like Sherry did because that's that's your you are your own best guide. You are the keeper of your own wisdom. Yeah. Exactly. And and it'll it'll save you a lot of pain and trauma, I, huh? I know what would have happened. I mean, I would have liked this guy, but I would have been in line with a lot of other women. And he, and, he, and he said that. He said he's dating lots of women. Well, I don't yep. think you guys dating lots of women. It's just not, I don't see how you're going to really get to know me. I'm just another, you know, pretty lady sitting at a table. You know what I mean? Like, I just, um, I don't mean like I'm a pretty lady, but you know what I mean? I'm I hear what you're saying. Object. I'm an object, you know, for him to, you know, right. better to do. So every night he has a different, you know, woman at the table. So yeah, I think if you have these these feelings, these intuitions, listen to yourself. Don't listen to what everybody else is telling you. Don't, you know, um, you have a right to feel how you feel, you know, mm-hmm. you do. Mm-hmm. And in my experience, a part of why I ended up in a long-term narcissistic relationship uh, or a relationship with a narcissist is because I didn't listen to myself. All the, all the information was there at the very beginning. And I, I listened to him and not me. And, and that was crazy making. And so w- when I started dating after that, after my divorce, I didn't date during the divorce. I, I waited, I needed to have time for me. And when I started dating, I was dating a, a, someone who was dating a bunch of women. And I was like, Oh, I could be a big girl. I, I can, I can do this. Be with, you know, date somebody who's seeing a bunch of people, even though I wasn't seeing a bunch of people. And then finally, I realized I was re-triggering trauma from my ex-husband. And when I realized that, I, I went to the person. And I said, I, I, can't, I can't do this. I can't be in a, a relationship with somebody who's seeing a bunch of people. So I'm really sorry. I really like you. But I'm just going to take a step back. And you, you do what you need to do. Uh, but I'm taking a step back. And, um, and it's not because I don't like you. It's because I, I need to take care of me. Excellent. I yeah. Love that. I love that. Yeah. The signals are there. You know, um, I know you're a spiritual teacher and the, the spirit is there and it's going to show all, show you all kinds of things. Um, when I married my third husband and that was definitely the worst husband of all, he was abusive and it was just not, but I, but I did marry him and I take responsibility. But when I was just about to go down the aisle and I write about this in my book, Love Smack, there was, it was this big temple and they had these big, big doors and they opened up and 
there's like 300 people and there's these two pedestals of flowers and I'm just gorgeous dress. All of a sudden the pedestals of flowers fell on my dress. They just, oh my. And I, I said, God, you are speaking to me and I should have, I should have not done this. And four months later I was, I was out of that relationship. So spirit is there. It's going to show you the signs every single time. We just have to listen. We have to be willing to listen. And then we have to be willing to face our biggest fears. Right. For sure. Right. And, and, and then embrace those fears sometimes so that you can move through them. It's fascinating. So Sherry, tell everybody how, if they, if people are listening and they want to contact you and, or work with you, how do they find you? So they can find my book love smacked on Amazon and they can go to sherrygaba.com if they want therapy of some sort. And that's S-H-E-R-R-Y-G-A-B-A.com. I have also a free ebook for them, which is um, Narcissistic Partners and Obsessive Love. And they can get that at sherrygaba.com forward slash NP quiz. And I think you'll have that in your show notes, but sherrygaba.com forward slash NP quiz. And then if they want to do some online coaching with me and join my membership, um, I'm offering your listeners a dollar trial for a week. And then it goes to $27. It's live group coaching. It's also a course called Wake Up Recovery for Healing Love Addiction, Codependency, and Toxic Relationships. It has all kinds of great expert interviews in there, like Jack Canfield and um, John Gray and Melody Baby. So great interviews that I've gone through the years. But just the, the, the videos and the course itself are just worth everything and the life coaching um, and the worksheets and then a community. Like I had said earlier, the most important thing, guys, is to have a community. So you can find my Wake Up Recovery uh, at wakeuprecovery.com forward slash IG1. And that'll get you in at the dollar trial, wakeuprecovery.com forward slash IG1. One. Writing it down, Sherry. Thank you so much for the conversation. Thank you for the, I am so grateful that you've created this work and you are doing it because I know you're helping tons of people. So thank you. Thank you too. And thank you for what you're doing in the world. Thank you. So I'm just going to end with, and so it is, namaste. Well, that wraps up our empowering chat today. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, go to susanburrell.com. You can see all the information about my new book, Live an Empowered Life, A 30-Day Journey. You can also access guided meditations that I have on Insight Timer through the website. And just see what else is out there on my site that you might find empowering and exciting to experience. You can also contact me through the website at Susan at SusanMorell.com. That's it for today. See you next time.